Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. Let's get into it. Let's let's do it. Welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. It's another Wednesday. And sadly, honestly, I'm sad this month is coming to a close because this is our last climate episode of this month. We plan to continue to cover it moving forward, obviously, but it's been quite the ride and an informative one at that. And, you know, sad that it's coming to a close, but couldn't have chosen like a better episode to wrap up this month and a better guest. Our guest is Carrie Fulton, who is a frontline policy coordinator at Climate Justice Alliance. And her resume is mm, chef's kiss. She's an award-winning environmental and climate justice advocate, organizer, writer, and you guessed it, more. She's coordinated campaigns, conferences, like you name it, she's done it. Some of them that are included is Power Shift, which is the largest youth climate summit in the United States. Like the the largest, the pinnacle, the end-all be-all. And she also, of course, worked on the 2017 National People's Climate March, which like... She's an icon. Okay. Okay, I see you. I'm impressed. An icon and legend. And we couldn't be more grateful to have her on to talk everything environmental justice and what that means. It's a very, very important aspect of climate change and the way we look at it. So... We will dive all into that today with Carrie. 
So without further ado, here she is. <laughs> First and foremost, thank you for having me. Really excited to talk with you all a little bit more about the Climate Justice Alliance and, and what climate justice really means. I actually got started in this work when I was in college. So that was a while ago. I graduated from Howard University in 2007. And right around that time, while I was in college, we had a lot of really major occurrences that happened. Of course, we had the war in Iraq and the Bush administration while I was in college. And then we also had Hurricane Katrina. And Hurricane Katrina was definitely an eye-opener for me. But most importantly, I, I came out of organizing and started within that framework because of my own family's life and circumstances. A lot of growing up, I grew up in Denver, Colorado, and so it's very environmentally friendly. A lot of times when people think about Denver, they think about nature, they think about greenery in many different forms. Um, <laughs> But <laughs> very true, very true. We actually, it's funny, our like first guest of this month, we're dedicating the whole month to climate change. First guest, he's also from Colorado. He's from Boulder. Oh, so he wow. was also like, yeah, I just came from, you know, the outdoors. It kind of led me to my work. And now same story here. I love that. Well, it's a little different, right? So I never thought about my work in, in the framework of environmentalism. I actually saw a little bit about, you know, I, I'm an 80s baby. I was born in 85. And my family, in a lot of ways, like many families, especially Black people living in major cities and different things, were impacted by a lot of the different aspects of the war on drugs, you know, and also police brutality and racial profiling. So I saw a lot of that within my lifetime growing up in Denver. So when people think about Denver and Colorado, they often think about ski slopes and mountains. And yeah, I've been skiing before, but it's not my bag, you know? And I have lots of friends that- I feel that. Yeah. <laughs> Cannot ski. And I grew up in Vermont for a little bit. So See? trust me, like absolute elephant in the room for me. Every time I talk to someone, I'm like, yeah, Vermont moment. Don't ski. We'll see in the summer weather. Exactly. Exactly. I love Estes Park. In the summer, you can see all the beautiful stars. It's a beautiful thing. So, but in that process, and then even like not connecting it, like my, my father is work for the government and he cleans up environmental waste. So, and I didn't actually think about it in that framework. So when I was in college, I actually, my first job when I was in college, I was so excited that summer after my first year at Howard, I went back and I was like, I already got a job for the <laughs> summer and I'm going to be... <laughs> You know, I was so excited. And then uh, I became one of those people that's like, excuse me, do you have a moment for the environment? Do you have a moment for the environment? And it did not connect for me at all. And and actually, uh, one of the days I actually left in tears because it was just that much of a disconnect. And also it was just like stick to this script that did not connect to me. You mean just like that kind of canvassing, like hitting the pavement, like people just weren't responding, weren't caring to what you were weren't responding, weren't caring, you know, most of the time when people did care, it was just like, well, we're just glad you have a job, baby. I'm excited for you. I'll sign your petition. Yeah, they like praise you. They're like, oh, you're doing great work. So I'll sign your petition. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, baby, she's been out here all day, <laughs> but in front of this King Supers. And then you, get the, <laughs> and then you get the other people who want to talk to you about 
um, other forms of energy because we at that time we were trying to get legislation passed to bring wind energy to Colorado. This was like 2004, mm -hmm. right? And so I had no idea, mind you, stick to the script, right? I have no idea what I'm talking about. And here comes some old retiree that really wants to talk to me about nuclear energy. And I'm just like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh, like, sure, sure. Um... Just smile and wave, boys. Smile and wave. <laughs> but can you sign the petition, though? Because I kind of need, it's like this job is contingent about how many people I can get to sign this petition. You know, yes. in that sense, after, so in, when Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005, it was a very eye-opening moment. And I had the opportunity to go with some other students from my school in 2006 for an alternative spring break. And it was one of the first times that Howard had done that project. And so we got the opportunity to go and visit Biloxi, Mississippi, Mobile, Alabama, and New Orleans, and really see firsthand a lot of what the devastation looked like. And for me, that was a big aha moment in the sense of, okay, connecting the work I was doing as an AmeriCorps member, working with elementary school students in DC around literacy, around everything that my father was doing, cleaning up environmental waste. You know, at the same time that I was going down there, he was also a part of a, a massive cleanup crew after Hurricane Katrina. So there's like these frontline experiences that he's had that I don't even understand. And now it's starting to have this aha moment. And then also to understand that all the social justice issues that were already existing, inequities, and it just gets super compounded and you know exposed when you have a major natural disaster. And so that was very eye-opening, especially when we think about the policy and the policy implications, home ownership. You know, there were times where it was just like, you really see how people are impacted, how people lose property. And for me at that moment, I said, this could happen anywhere. Anywhere that you have large concentrations of Black folk, this could happen. You know, where we live at, we live in a lot of coastal regions. And that was a very aha moment. And even thinking about the inequities and how policy works when you think about how our communities are treated versus other communities who may have more affluence. And so that one day I was sitting at a table and it just, you know, I'm, I'm talking about this aha moment at a networking party for a fellowship that I got called Young People For, which was a, a program through People for the American Way, which I definitely, you know, recommend for students who are interested. And it, you know, it was just like, oh, well, I want to, you know, I was talking to somebody, they're like, well, you need to know about environmental justice. I was like, environmental justice? This is like a whole nother field. It's yeah. kind of like, who is she? <laughs> right. Who is this? Right. It's like opening up a whole yeah. nother layer of understanding. And I never went back. Right. So that's how, you know, and, and every year it becomes a deeper connection and you know, I think that for a lot of us, when we do this work, it's interesting because environmentalism is probably one of the most privileged activism areas, right? Because it, it's a lot of privilege to think about 
things, conserving things that you don't or have never seen or to think about things that are more long-term sometimes and not necessarily thinking about these immediate traumas that are happening directly, you know? So it's a very interesting space to be in, but I know that for people who once they have that aha moment and they have that like, who is this, right? What is this? It's something that is embedded in your spirit and something that you take with you no matter what field you decide to go in. It's not a STEM field. It's not a, you know, just a policy field. It's a, anybody who lives on this planet and has been impacted. This is your field to take with it and throw it into anything that you're already doing. Totally. I mean, you know, we've been covering just climate change. We've been trying to hit as many intersections and little, you know, corners of it that we can this month but there's so much like it's literally everywhere and it's also funny like when you think about environmental justice you're like who is she like who who is this like because it's also you think about environmental justice I feel like those two words just never go together it's like you think about like science or like biology or geology or whatever and then like justice how do those go hand in hand it's a pretty complex topic probably a lot of people don't know much about but we'll definitely dive deeper into all that today too but yes yeah and i think that's the perfect segue to talking about your current position which is frontline policy coordinator at climate justice alliance so can you tell us a little bit about climate justice alliance and also what your role does specifically yes so climate justice alliance is an alliance of 74 member organizations, and we are all over, mainly North America, mainly the United States and her territories. And we work very closely around the implications of climate injustice and creating a better world through a vision of regenerative economics. So it's not just about saying this is the problem and we want to stop it, but this is also us working with communities who are most impacted, communities who have historically been marginalized and figuring out the solutions that work for all of us. And so that's a major part and a component of what the Climate Justice Alliance is. So as a frontline policy coordinator, my job is one, to gather up a lot of the information from our member organizations to help keep them connected to some of the stuff that's happening on the federal level. When we think about federal climate policy, we are working hard every day as a part of the policy team to analyze federal bills, especially right now with the Biden administration and everything that's happening, thinking about how we can influence some of the executive order decisions that have come out. When we think about what does it mean to invest 40% of all climate change funding into communities who are most impacted and into environmental justice. What does that actually look like in implementation? So that's a major part of it. And then the other part that is a major aspect of the work that we do is helping to decide how we communicate out the work that we're doing. So we work closely with our organizing team and our communications team to figure out the best way that we can make sure that we're amplifying the voices of not only our members, but also of communities who are oftentimes not at the table when we have these conversations. Well, I think that's 
a great segue as well because I want to dive into all of this and all of the important terms that come with environmental justice, really, but especially the work that Climate Justice Alliance is doing. So to start, let's really dive into like explaining what is environmental justice? What does that mean? Oh, definitely. So environmental justice has to deal with the disproportionate um, impact that communities of color and or low income have when it comes to placement of environmentally toxic industries, pollutants, how our environment is treated in comparison to some other communities. So environmental justice is about making sure that we are lifting up and empowering those communities so that they can address environmental racism and environmental injustice. I think it's also very important because environmental justice comes out of a long and deep history of dealing with Jim Crow and segregation and civil rights legislation. So environmental justice, when we think about it in the United States of America, is deeply embedded into how our communities were shifted and changed in order to protect other communities. So whether that's a highway dismantling a historic African-American community, whether it's urban renewal and how that displaced communities, it can also be about where we see Uh, Super fun sites. Where do you place environmentally toxic locations as an industry or whatever? And 70 times more likely that it's near a community of color. So those are really, really key when we think about that the burden of our environmental toxins, when we think about even like your straw, when you think about the plastics that are utilized or the rubber that's needed to create tires or any of those different things, every community is not necessarily impacted the same. And so we want to make sure that those who have been disproportionately impacted are empowered and that they have a voice and that we can create a system and a shift that will lead to truly protecting all communities. And a lot of environmental justice is embedded in the principles of environmental justice that were created in 1991. It's 17 principles. They were created the first people of color Environmental Leadership Summit. I think this is important because we're leading into the 30th anniversary of that summit and we still utilize those principles and they're still, they still resonate and they're still important today. Is there anything about environmental justice that you feel like people don't know? There's something you're like, why don't you people know this? This should be so, not just mainstream, but like something that you would like graduate high school with, for example. I think it's important for people to know what's in their own community. You know, I actually, when I'm not working with Climate Justice Alliance, I co-teach a course at my alma mater, Howard University. And so we teach an environmental studies and justice course. So shouts out to Dr. Burke over at the Department of Environmental Studies at Howard University. But the beautiful thing about it is that course, this is the first year, it's a pilot course, where we are partnering with the National Educational Equity Lab to offer that course to 130 um, high school students at tier one high schools across the country. So that's a beautiful thing because now you're talking about environmental justice with students in Flint, Michigan, students in the Bronx, students in Allentown, Pennsylvania, students in Middletown, Ohio, students in DC, as well as with college students. So the idea of being able to have that aha moment and even to also know what's in your own community 
is so important. I think sometimes when people think about environmental justice, they think that this is just some fringe thing where we want justice for the trees, you know, and that's cool. We actually do. We do. I, yeah. Love trees. I definitely Huge love fan trees. Of trees. I love I'm trees a big so fan. much. You know, so that's not what we're saying. But what we are saying is that to be able to see your community in a different light, to be able to understand that environmental justice and especially climate justice, I think is really key and critical that when people say it, they know that it is about communities of color, that they know that it is about empowering those who are most impacted. Lots of people throw out these words, you know, and these terminologies, but they don't think about what they're saying in the sense of this is about making space and empowering those who have historically, because of the institutions that we live in here in the United States and also globally, when we think about climate justice as a global conversation, who have... um, not cause the same burden as far as like environmental impact, but they feel the brunt. So when we use these words, climate justice, when we use these words, environmental justice, it's also a call to, to continue to make space for those at the margins. It is a call for folk to give up space for those at the margins and many times not to continue having the same conversations about us without us. We are not animals, (laughs) but sometimes when people move from a conservationist mindset, they're used to advocating for things that don't necessarily talk in a human language. You know, they're used to advocating for polar bears. They're used to advocating for, you know, the Himalayas, or they're advocating for, you know, uh, a national park, things that can't speak, you know, the Lorax, I speak for the trees, right? But (laughs) that's not what environmental justice is. This is humans who can speak for themselves. And that's important to make that space. Right. And, you know, Climate Justice Alliance talks a lot about frontline communities, which I think obviously goes hand in hand here. Can you kind of explain really what that means? Like, what does it mean to be on the front lines of climate change and, and which communities are on the front lines? Definitely. So a lot of times, especially with this pandemic, the word frontline has become very popular, right? Where people are like, I'm on the front lines of the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, in certain cases, like if you are a doctor or if you're a nurse, you're at the front lines of the pandemic. You're doing the hours, especially especially the nurses, especially the people who cannot afford to quarantine, especially the farm workers. So when we talk about the front lines, we're talking about geographically, the coastal communities and communities who are directly impacted by what is already happening with climate change. We're talking about indigenous peoples whose lands are being lost. We're talking about farmers and not big mainstream, huge farmers, but everyday small farmers who are trying to live. We're talking about the working class, not the people who own Walmart, but the people who work at Walmart. You know, the people who do not have $400 in savings if um, a natural disaster were to happen. The people who have historically, sometimes we talk about someone being poor, And then we also have to talk about somebody being low wealth 
because there are times when we think about what is, you know, somebody might be poor at this moment, but that doesn't mean that you're low wealth. If you can go back and you can say like, well, I can pull from this family member, I can go do this, or I can, I have this that I, I have this other savings, but there are people who are literally, it's make or break. And we've seen that with COVID. We also know about the history of segregation in our country. So because of that, and also the history of slavery, we have consistently seen that African-Americans are disproportionately impacted by climate change, first and worst. When we talk about people of color and or low income, that and or is so critical because we are talking about you have affluent African-American communities who still might be right at the next door of industry. You look at a Baldwin Hills, you know, in LA. Right. But you also have, you know, working class white communities, you know, in Appalachia who are also in those front lines. So when we think about the class struggles, we think about racial struggles, and we think about the compounding of those things, that's when we're talking about the front line. So sometimes when that doctor, when we think about a doctor being at the front line, yes, sometimes you are, but not in the same way as that nursing assistant who is literally cleaning up the waste. You have so many stories of, of doctors, especially during COVID, who wouldn't even touch COVID patients below their pay grade. But someone has to clean it up, and that's the janitor. Someone has to clean it up, and that's the nurse's assistant. Somebody has to clean it up, and that's the people who are living, you know, within a mile of where you are taking and incinerating that waste. So that is a major aspect of what we consider frontline. And I think it's important that we, you know, one of the pieces that CJA does is try and, one, convene different frontline voices and to create more space to lift those voices up in places where they oftentimes are not. Definitely. To pivot in further on this conversation, we can talk a little bit more about how climate change and, you know, sort of environmental impact impacts specific communities, specifically black and brown communities. So who wouldn't mind giving some of the specifics as to how these communities are impacted. And I know that is like a can of worms, like where do we start? <laughs> but sort of that first one that comes to mind. So there's a few different ways that communities of color, black communities, immigrant communities, indigenous communities are impacted and each way is unique. So that's why it's oftentimes important a lot of times that we differentiate. Oftentimes when we throw people together, it just becomes a lump stream of, you know, well, this happens to everyone and that's not necessarily the case. So the issues that may happen, you know, within African-American communities, and we talked a little bit about that when we talk about redlining and we're still seeing the impact of redlining when you think about heat islands and neighborhoods that were historically redlined are traditionally hotter, a few degrees hotter than neighborhoods that were not. So I live here in Baltimore. I live in West Baltimore. And you feel that now in West Baltimore, based on tree canopy, based off of thinking about vacants 
and how areas are maintained, the way that property taxes are handled. And so for those of you who don't know what redlining is, because that's sometimes for people is a different term, it has a lot to deal with how the banking systems help to continue segregation. And it also has to deal with neighborhood covenants. So some neighborhoods traditionally, especially before the 1960s, did not allow African Americans to move into those neighborhoods. So, and then the banks decided, they, they made these maps and they basically redlined and they said, these areas are safe areas to invest in and these are not safe areas to invest in. And oftentimes the areas that were considered not safe to invest in uh, were African-American communities. And so because of that, it depreciated the value. Along with the fact that you have segregation, what oftentimes happen is that those communities, when you look at a Harlem, when you look at an Upton in, in Baltimore, or even when you look at areas in DC that have now gentrified immensely, they were areas that did not have um, the capacity to grow right because you forced a bunch of people to live in one neighborhood and you didn't give them the services in the same way that you gave other neighborhoods who may um, garner more property taxes, who the property prices might be more. So then because the property taxes are higher, they get better schools. There's, it becomes this cycle of things that happen where you don't get the resources. And then when you don't get the resources, then it leads to illegal dumping. And then it leads to blight. And then it leads to industries that shouldn't be there being in your neighborhood, right? So those different issues become compounded. So to get back onto what we talk about with communities of color and black communities and immigrant communities, and also when you think about how they're impacted, African-Americans are more likely to live in coastal regions that are going to be impacted by a sea level rise. You'll also note that African-Americans, because of migration patterns, when we think about Going back to the segregation era, you know, you had the Great Migration where Black people literally had to flee the South because of economics and also because of real fear and danger of, and also jobs and everything. So they went up North and that's what led to, you know, increased populations in these different places like Harlem, right? And now you're starting to see a mass migration to the South. And you're starting to see more and more Black people and more people moving from the North to the South. And you're starting to see things like it, you know, what we saw with the last election where Georgia went purplish, right? Mm -hmm. And people were like, yeah, right? But then when you start looking at those maps <laughs> and you start looking at what carried something, you know, it's only small pockets but the full state might be red, but there's a small pocket with a high population uh, like Atlanta or a Savannah that has turned something a different color. On a state level, what oftentimes happens is that those same progressive cities that have high black populations, you know, or growing black populations, they are trying to fight against a very conservative system that doesn't want to see change, you know? 
So while Black folk are migrating more to the South, you're also seeing renewable energy standards and you're seeing the growth of green economies in some of these other states that Black people are tending to leave from, like California and New York and even Vermont. You know, I don't know how many Black people lived in Vermont, but I heard there's a few. One, one. There's a whole story about, you know, these folk, they were really nice and they wanted to tell me about this guy that they knew who lived in Vermont and they wanted to know if I knew him. And I was like- That is the most Vermont I thing I have ever heard. Like population of five people, everyone thinks they know everyone. And then you like bring it down a little bit too to like regions and forget about it. Everyone's like, oh yeah, my cousin's cousin's cousin, totally. I love Vermont. It was beautiful when I went. Oh, it's, look, it's a great spot. I can't recommend it enough. But, like, it has its idiosyncrasies, let me tell you. Shout out, Bernie. What's up, Bernie? <laughs> Anywho, but yeah, so when we think about that, so we have to really, this is why when we think about federal policy, why it's so important, because we're going back into this conversation just like we had with the civil rights movement where you have differences happening in different regions and in different places. And if we don't have a federal strategy, you are literally gonna see whole populations left behind. Why is this important? This is important for one reason because during the last energy revolution, when we started to see oil and coal being introduced into the market, African-Americans were literally either enslaved or in a position where they were not allowed to profit from an industry because of segregation and different policies that were happening. This is a new energy system that is being developed over the last few decades that has the potential to really not only create space for diversity and equity, but also to make space for reparations, to make space for Black folk to really claim our own energy, to have power over your own energy for community solar and all of these different things. And that's beautiful things that people have taken advantage of in communities all over the country that we have to protect, right? And so this is this is key and critical. There's so many different aspects. So when we think about the idea, you know, going from this idea of this aha moment of like, wow, policy really impacts communities, especially when there's a natural disaster, to wow, we can change policy and we have to be very focused in on the implementation and the nuances. And if you haven't really, if you haven't really lived and seen that, it's really hard to understand the nuances. But there are so many different ways. We're not even talking about the way that different immigrant communities are impacted because you may be running from a country or you may be leaving a country that's already impacted by environmental hazards, by natural disasters, by climate change, and how many of those people were being pushed back to countries that hadn't even truly revitalized from the last natural disaster. So those are all really key and critical aspects. Right. And another big community that is on the front lines that is largely affected is indigenous communities. Definitely. So can you kind of highlight, honestly, even the history there? You know, we did kind of also want to ask about extractive economies and things like that. And if you can maybe explain what that means, maybe how that also really just, I feel like, highlights the real history and background of 
the way indigenous communities have been victims of extractive economies and then ultimately obviously climate change and just environmental justice as a whole definitely well i would say definitely for one i would encourage all of your listeners viewers schnoozers to <laughs> visit indigenous environmental network ienearth.org to learn more about indigenous sovereignty and indigenous rights when it comes to the environment and climate justice they are one of our member organizations and definitely really good comrades and friends and i think when we talk about that idea of extractive economy we have to think about the fact that we have been dealing with people taking from indigenous peoples globally. So the, the term indigenous, oftentimes when people think about it, they think about Native Americans in the United States, but indigenous is a global term. You know, when we think about the uh, Native people of any land. Now, when we're talking about here in the Western Hemisphere, and we're talking about uh, Turtle Island, also known as North America. We're talking about people who came over when Col Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492 or whatever they taught y'all, which hopefully if you were born after 2000, you didn't actually learn that, I don't know. But when that happened, it literally changed the climate it led to a mini ice age because when Christopher Columbus came over, they killed off so many indigenous people in North America that it left the lands so they weren't being managed and tilled. And so trees just grew in it and it made the area colder and impacted the whole globe, right? You also have to think about the fact that indigenous, um, peoples have had to deal with guns, germs, and steel being used and weaponized against them ever since 1492. And so there's this very, very deep history when we think about our, the foundations of our country. Even we think about our people that we may think of as heroes like Abraham Lincoln, you know, and how they treated indigenous people. When you think about the extraction of culture, of history, and also the reality that so much land was taken to make space to energize other places that had nothing to do with indigenous people. So you can think about our good friends in Black Mesa in Arizona on Navajo and Diné land. And the land, the water was being extracted from that land to power land in California and Las Vegas. And they had to reclaim their energy rights. And that was a long process. So that is a process that is about a large history of reclamation of land, reclamation of the sovereignty of indigenous people there are all these treaties that have not been honored and that's why i would say that it's important and also i want to make sure that and this is why i always say that people should go to the source because it is important that you 
find the experts in whatever way that you can and that you try and find the frontline voice in whatever that way that you can to make sure that you have an accurate assessment of what's happening. So I would definitely encourage continuing to learn, study, and visit ienearth.org. Yes, we'll definitely add that to the episode description so people can go check it out. But you also mind highlighting kind of like also present day, what are some of like similar to the question we asked about black and brown communities? Like what are some of the impacts on indigenous communities today? Definitely. I mean, for indigenous peoples, they're still fighting to reclaim land. They're still dealing with pipelines that they want to push through on native reservations and tribal land. You know, they're still dealing with toxins in their waters that are oftentimes not given the same amount of attention due to just optics and politics. They still, you know, when we think about even social justice issues, Black people and Indigenous people, we are neck and neck when you think about it. When you think about COVID rates, when you think about police brutality, you know, George Floyd, the officer who murdered George Floyd, Derek Chauvin, or however you say his name. I think it's interesting that his last name is Chauvin and it kind of sounds like chauvinist, but that's a whole nother story. (laughs) But he killed an indigenous man in Minneapolis right before he killed George Floyd. And we don't talk about that. We don't talk about those intersectionalities enough. And there's still the fact that you have the erasure of indigenous culture. You have a lot of indigenous elders who are who were traumatized by being forced into boarding school that's a whole nother process so you know there's a lot of different things but there's also a lot of joy a lot of beautiful things coming out of indigenous communities out of native heritage and so i always try and as much as possible because there's enough things in the world that will bring us trauma i always think it's important to focus on the joy absolutely great it's like a nice balance gotta like refresh be able to figure out okay how are we going to keep fighting for this and some joy is like definitely some good way to do that for sure definitely in terms of other solutions because i think joy can be a solution in you know a certain respect right it's one avenue What are some solutions that you are seeing towards climate justice in general and specifically that uh, you're working on? Definitely. I think for one, I want to plug the people's orientation to a regenerative economy toolkit that we put out in um, alliance with the United Frontline Table, which is a 16-member alliance or mortgage board. (laughs) So we've been working hard on that. Uh, We also have supported the implementation of some legislation, including the Thrive Act, which was uh, just introduced on the Hill. And so those are big pieces when we think about continuing to build out the voices of workers. We have groups like the Labor Network for Sustainability, which is also a member of Climate Justice Alliance that has put out the Just Transition Listening Project, really gathering the voices of workers to figure out what a just transition looks like. So there are solutions that are coming out. You also see the idea of investing in our power. How do we take the work that people are doing and and reinvest it into our power? So that's another aspect of the Climate Justice Alliance that we're working very hard on. And beyond just creating these solutions, we 
we are also seeing how with this new administration, how can we utilize executive orders to create the change that we need if we can't get things pushed through through Congress? So we are also uh, members of a campaign called Build Back Fossil Free. And through that, which IEN is a lead organization leading that along with Center for Biological Diversity, we have put together some goals about what the Biden administration can do to really address the issues and to build a better economy without investing in fossil fuel industries and really divesting from that. So those are solutions that we see on the ground. And so there's a really a lot of, you know, thinking about the care economy. How do we invest in the people who serve, the people who help us? And and knowing that the solution, once we get there, it's going to change our economies. So when we're moving from an extractive economy to one that's regenerative, one that is actually based off renewable energy, one that is based off of continuing to support people at the margins, because that's very important that we are investing in all aspects of our community. It's going to take a lot of care and maintenance in a way that we may not think about it. So that's a major part of it. Also, when we think about a regenerative economy, I I don't know if y'all can see this shirt, but I want to wear this. Shouts out to my homegirl, Tanya Fields from the Bronx. Wait, I love that. Black Feminist Project. Anyway, damn, you know what I'm saying? But it's an important to us that uh, we see the future as a feminist economy, one that really invests in lifting up women, creating space for not only films, but also for mothers, for people who traditionally have been left out of certain sectors for making space for those voices for changing even the way that we that we work so we're making space and spaciousness for folk who are you know and oftentimes unfortunately the the head of the household even sometimes when they don't want to be the head of the household so right definitely but i think For someone that's interested, they're listening to this episode, they're like, okay, I want to get involved. I want like baby steps. How do they dive in? Like start getting involved in this sphere. Where do they go? What do they do? So I always encourage people to look in their own neighborhood. You know, there's so much that you could be doing, you know, thinking about your own community organization, thinking about what you're passionate about. Like I said, there is no right way to be an environmentalist because we're all environmentalists. So if you're into fashion, thinking about how you can be more sustainable, if you're into art, thinking about the toxins within your art supplies and how do you really think about the chemical, the chemicals that you might be coming into, you know, into contact with and thinking about that in the process of like, how do we make less than? You could think about it from a journalism perspective. You could think about it from every different perspective about what's passionate for you. I do not, and I want to say this again, I do not necessarily think it is a good idea to parachute into anybody's neighborhood thinking that you are going to be captain, save the block. And that is hard because a lot of times we we have the tendency to want to, as soon as we hear something, be like, oh, I want to change it. I want to, I want to be the difference, you know, I, I will do it, you know. 
And, and that we've all been, I definitely have been there. It, you can make a difference. Let me not say that you can't, um, but you can make a bigger difference when you are doing it with the people who are already there. When you sit down, make yourself available to volunteer. Don't make yourself available to lead first because there's lots of leaders and part of leadership is serving. Especially right now in the culture that we're in, we have a very microwave mentality about things. And we also have made a culture of woke divism, you know, where it's like, oh, I'm going to make this selfie happen. I'm going to do that. And so we are asking for something a little different. And I think that Climate Justice Alliance is um, very cool because it is not one person. It is not a culture that's based off of, you know, this and that. It's more of us together collectively. And, and that can be hard because the biggest part and challenge, and this is why I tell people that if, if you want to get involved, just find a group to volunteer with so that you can learn and so that you can get the opportunity to just observe and also to because people need that help a lot of times you know especially small organizations they need help especially if you're thinking about if you're in high school or if you're in college think about internship opportunities that you can do think about americorps you know go get you some tuition assistance real quick and it'll definitely change your uh, your mentality and ideology as well and and think about the organizations that might be on your campus or in your community that might be already doing things think about research opportunities citizen science is extremely important especially for environmental justice communities so the more that we can get people involved, especially universities, if you are run an environmental club, just ask them what they need. So your value is very important. The opportunities are endless, but the best thing to do is just ask how people need help and, and to actually listen to that. What's most helpful? Because sometimes if you don't ask and you just do, you could unintentionally do something harmful. A large part of bringing justice to communities is just listening to communities and making the space for what they actually requested. Totally. That's yeah. such a good point. I think it's like also kind of like redefining proactivity because everyone thinks, oh, I should just jump in. Okay. Like I need to be a part of this or I need to come up with the solution or let me just do it. Ask questions later when really asking the questions is going to give you the better direction in the first place. Yeah, it's true. And like we had you know, Dr. Wilkins and our other guests this month come on and just talk about how also on the individual, on yourself even, it's just too much. Like you can't do it alone. You can't, you know, tackle this issue alone. And so I think, again, going back to your point too, like join an organization, look in your community, find something that works for you and be a part of it and uplift those organizations because there are so many doing the work. It's almost overwhelming how many they are. So how can we you know, distribute all of our bodies and help uplift all of these amazing organizations and leaders and all the amazing action being taken. So I love all of that advice. So thank you so much for all the amazing, like just explaining all of this for us. It's really helpful. Before you go, can you kind of also plug 
literally everything and anything where people can find you people can find climate justice alliance people can get involved any and all resources and again we will also put stuff in episode description for sure for sure so definitely on my end climatejusticealliance.org if you're going to follow cja on social media it's cjar power like the collective, our power, CJA, our power. Find us on Instagram, on Twitter, we're on Facebook, climatejusticealliance.org. You can also visit unitedfrontlinetable.org so you can read the people's orientation to a regenerative economy toolkit. Uh, if you want to learn more about me as a human being in general, I am at check the weather, at check the weather on all platforms. Like, is it raining? Is it snowing? I don't know. Check the weather like that. In general, we once you get to Climate Justice Alliance, we have a host of resources. If you want to learn more about extractive economies, if you want to learn about reinvesting in our power, if you want to learn about food sovereignty, if you want to learn about the Green New Deal, if you want to learn about really the history of climate justice, all of these different things you can find on climatejusticealliance.org. And also, you can also find are 74 member organizations and one of them might be in your area and if you're looking for a great place to volunteer those are a great way to start thank you so much we will definitely be plugging all of that and we just appreciate your time and you coming on here and highlighting all this very very important stuff for us we appreciate it thank you for having me well into top stories we are back with our normal structure just in case like anyone got their OCD in a bunch last week but we're back and we're back with our first story which is that the Senate has passed anti-Asian American hate crime bill so basically the Senate on Thursday passed an anti-hate crime bill aimed at addressing uh, a surge in attacks on Asian Americans amid the COVID-19 pandemic. So this is a measure which would create a Justice Department position focusing on the issue and enhance state and local hate crime reporting. And so that actually soared right through the chamber and the Senate with 94 to 1 vote. And can we talk about this man who was the only one to vote against this bill? There was a group of Republicans that were opposing it, but they ended up voting for it. But there's one little scrawny little boy. So scrawny. Scrawny little boy. Absolute scrawny. That decided to vote no on this bill. And that is Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri. Like, he's rising in the ranks. Like, it's really Ted Cruz and Mitch McConnell that's up there in my shit list. And he's rising right up through the ranks. And this might be one to even give him the title. Like Mitch McConnell move aside in this moment. I mean, you've got like him inciting like an insurrection and supporting all of that. Then you've got this. It's like you have to have some serious icicles in your heart to, amongst other things, and some serious to not support small this. dick energy. Oh my God, Small that's a chode. That's energy. an absolute chode moment. <laughs> like, sorry, it ain't, it ain't any bigger than that. 
And that's a compliment. Truly. Couldn't have said it better myself, Samantha. But basically, just a reminder on how this works, too, when it comes to passing legislation. So it passed in the Senate, and so they made their marks on the bill. It's now going back to the House, where they will, like, approve the Senate's amendments and everything. And then once the House approves it, it will then go to President Biden to sign. So we'll see what happens in the House. We'll keep you updated. But... Honestly, you know, exciting. There was some bipartisanship here on this bill, as there should be. I mean, it's pretty straightforward and don't know how anyone could oppose this except for small dick Senator Josh Hawley. So, yeah, I mean, look, you would you would think that hate crimes would be like a a bipartisan thing to tackle, but like lynching's still not considered a hate crime in the United States federally. So... We got some we got some work to do. Well, work aside, some other news stories that are happening right now. So drum roll, please. The US Interior Department is making moves to restore Native American land. So here's the story. The Interior Department on Tuesday said that it's taking several steps to make it easier for Native American tribes to take land back into trust and simplify a process that was slowed by, you guessed it, the Trump administration. So our interior secretary issued a secretarial order that re-delegated authority to review and approve applications by tribes to the Regional Bureau of Indian Affairs directors, a reversal of a Trump-era order that gave jurisdiction to the Interior Department's headquarters, which led to delays. The policy of placing tribal lands in federal trusts lets tribes reacquire historic land and aims to remedy federal policies dating back more than a century that have resulted in Native American tribes losing their land base across the United States. So there's some movement here. I always get very worried about this stuff as to how much of it's actually going to be set into motion, but I'm really, really hopeful here. Yeah. And, you know, definitely a little bit relevant as we talked about indigenous communities today but big news today because like what is time because i guess president biden has is <laughs> hitting his 100 days his first 100 days of being in office on friday which is just like how how is that a thing how are we here already crazy but with the first 100 days of a new presidency is a long-standing tradition here in the U.S. to judge um, a president's performance after 100 days in office. So you also might hear, like, throughout campaigns, presidents promise things and say, in my first 100 days, I'm going to do this, this, and this. And so then after the 100 days, it's a good time to reflect on what that president has done and what they're, what kind of foundation they're also, like, laying for the future and the rest of their administration. So we just thought we'd highlight a few of the kind of like key policy issues of Biden's first 100 days and how he's done so far. He's hitting it on Friday. I'm sure more and more, you know, news stories and analysis will come out in the next few days and even next week, breaking down further this administration and what has happened. But to start, we'll talk about his COVID-19 response because Biden's major COVID-19 promise was that 100 million shots would be administered in Americans' arms in his first 100 days in office. And so, but now, 
some 290 million shots have been distributed. And then more than 230 million have been administered. And so about 96 million Americans are fully vaccinated, which is 29% of the population. And so Biden's vaccination campaign built on efforts started under President Donald Trump's administration to manufacture and distribute the shots. But he added like mass vaccination sites and ramped up government agencies to really aid and push forward the distribution effort. Wild. Also, in terms of the first 100 days, like let's talk jobs, let's talk economy. So in this little bucket, shall we say, Biden devoted much of his first several weeks in office to passing a $1.9 trillion stimulus bill to limit the pandemic's economic fallout. So, you know, those little stimmies. So it was titled the American Rescue Plan, which was passed over Republican opposition and delivered, yes, delivered on the key economic promise Biden made on the campaign trail, which was checks for Americans, right? money and bank accounts for those that really need the help. So helped by the stimulus plan for families and businesses, and also by the steady rollout of vaccines, God bless, economic growth is expected to top 7% this year, which is the fastest since 1984, which honestly, like, kind of wish it were 1995, so you could say that we could party like it was 1985, but whatever. Anyways, it would follow a 3.5% contraction last year, which was the worst performance in 74 years. So talk about a little, a little like turnaround story, like a little like underdog moment. Comeback hits. Total comeback hits. Totally. Well, moving on to, to climate change. So Biden moved quickly to have the United States rejoin the 2015 Paris Agreement another like God bless moment to tackle climate change and enlisted in an all of government approach to deliver on a campaign promise to decarbonize the American economy by 2050. And last week, he actually unveiled a goal to cut emissions in half from 2005 levels, nearly doubling a target laid out by President Obama. To help achieve that target, Biden has laid out a $2 trillion infrastructure plan that includes billions in investments in electric vehicles and clean energy that he says will create millions of good-paying jobs. And his administration has now paused new oil and gas leasing on federal lands and waters in what is widely seen as a first step towards a permanent ban, which is crazy. But exciting stuff on the climate change front, especially fun talking about it this month and we'll continue to update everyone on all the climate change policies and such moving forward and again if there's any outstanding issues to cover next week as you know just more analysis and more analysis and more analysis comes out on his first 100 days we will let you know for sure and i I like to make a little asterisk here is that we've started to see some really good trackers, but we want to like take a look at all of them before we chat through those. And I would like to also just say this is obviously some of these things that we just said are really positive, obviously from our lens, but there's a lot of work to do. Like the first hundred days, there are other things that like could have been done and we will honestly, in reflection next week, cover some of the things that still need to be done. So stay tuned. 100%. We'll do a roast. I love a good roast. But that is it for this week. Brand Ambassador Program. Don't forget to sign up if you're interested. We'll be putting out more information soon. Stay tuned. Follow us on Instagram, TikTok. Subscribe, rate, review. Follow on Spotify. And DM us with questions, with feedback thoughts opinions all of that stuff suggestions exactly so toodles
toodles, you guys. We, <laughs> we will be talking to you all next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.